This is KZSU Stanford. Welcome to Entitled Opinions. My name is Robert Harrison, and we're coming to you from the Stanford campus. Does that sound to you what it sounds like to me? A cry of despair coming from the wounded heart of this land of ours, this country at war with itself, this nation whose fallen angels always rise up again in fury to devastate what its better angels work so hard to bring about. We live in an unhinged world, friends, and I dread these terrible angels who swarm up from Tartarus time and again to remind us of the power they exert over us and who keep our union divided. They are the flies, they are limouche. They are the ones who chain us to the sins of our forebears and who declare, thou shalt not overcome, thou shalt not get over to the other side. Who will rid us of the flies? And what happens to a nation when the person we elect to its highest office is himself a brundle fly? We have the world we deserve, friends. We have the government we deserve. We have the president we deserve. And it's purple haze all around. Don't know if we're coming up or down. And they're buzzing all around. Welcome back to Entitled Opinions, les amis. It's been a very long time since our last confession, I know. Way too long for some of you. But the radio show you've come to love or hate is back on air now, if only briefly, with a handful of new shows for you over the coming weeks. A few announcements before we get down to business. Our longtime production manager, Dylan Montanati, has moved on after several years of devoted service to Entitled Opinions. We wish him the very best in his new job at the University of Chicago Press. Our new production manager is Vittoria Mollo. Vittoria is a second-year graduate student in Italian studies here at Stanford, and she's been busy these past few months overseeing the creation of a brand-new, beautiful website for Entitled Opinions. You're all going to want to check it out Our new website address is entitledopinions.stanford.edu. That's entitledopinions, one word, .stanford.edu. It not only looks a lot nicer, but is much easier to search and navigate than our old website. So thank you, Victoria, on behalf of the entire Entitled Opinions Brigade, and welcome aboard. to welcome back Truman Chen, a Stanford undergraduate who has been an assistant producer of Entitled Opinions for the past two years. It's great to have him on board with us again. Let me also take this occasion to welcome Cynthia Haven to our team. Cynthia runs one of the finest literary blogs out there. It's called The Book Haven. And those of you who follow Entitled Opinions are definitely going to want to check out The Book Haven. Cynthia is in charge of our public outreach, as it were. But don't worry, it's all very discreet. Nothing that goes against our core principles and general distaste for social media. The day Entitled Opinions opens a Facebook or Twitter account will be the day your host is no longer involved with it. We're not here to make the wasteland grow, but to open up a little oasis in it We're not here to spread the darkness, but to hold vigil during its long night of present-day nihilism. 
We're not here to rant and rave or gnash our teeth, but to think in the midst of thoughtlessness, entitled opinions, an ongoing war against deadness. Above all, deadness of brain. Speaking of brain deadness, what has happened to this republic of ours since entitled opinions went on hiatus almost a year ago? Something weird, something untoward, something that Nietzsche called the uncanniest of monsters, namely nihilism. In his notebooks, Nietzsche wrote, Nihilism stands at the door. Whence comes this most uncanny of guests? Nihilism has indeed come to the door, the door of our homeland, and we have taken in the guest, who is at once alien and monstrous, yet at the same time familiar and close, an intimate friend of our inner psyches. Nihilism, the devaluation of the highest values, the failure of values to preserve their value, the default of amor mundi, or our love of the world that we share in common. The guest is uncanny because it's our will to truth that exposed our values' lack of foundations, including the value of truth itself. Nihilism, which is brought about by the will to truth, undermines its very claims and leaves us in a state of aggravated uncertainty about everything. This uncanniest of guests is indeed at the door, and we have indeed invited him into the house. Now that he's inside, we have no choice but to think the uncanny by thinking uncannily. That means trying to grasp what is familiar in the strange and what is strange in the familiar. Uncanny thought is the challenge we face today on KZSU as we turn our attention during the next hour to Donald J. Trump, the 45th President of the United States of America, which once again has shown his capacity for the extraordinary, the unprecedented, and the unthinkable. It showed it eight years ago when it elected Barack Obama to the office, and it's done it again in reverse when it elected Mr. Trump to succeed him. I'm pleased to welcome back to Entitled Opinions my friend and colleague Hans Sluga, who is well known to those of you who follow this radio program. The show he and I did on Michel Foucault a few years back remains one of our most popular. The same goes for our more recent show on Wittgenstein. Hans Sluga is a professor of philosophy at UC Berkeley, author of several books. Among his most recent is Wittgenstein, brought out by Wiley Blackwell in 2011. Another book I highly recommend is Politics and the Search for the Common Good. That one came out in 2014 with Cambridge University Press. We've devoted shows to each of these two major books. Today, Professor Sluga is here to talk with me about Donald Trump and American plutocracy. That's the topic of a lecture he delivered at Berkeley a couple of months ago. So let's get right down to business. Hans, welcome back to Entitled Opinions. Thanks for joining us on KZSU. Thank you. It's always great to talk to you, Robert. So the title of this talk that you gave at Berkeley is Donald Trump Between Populist Rhetoric and Plutocratic Rule. And you begin by asking a series of questions, namely, who is Donald Trump and what does he stand for? Do we know? Does he himself know? Or is he caught, like all of us, in that precarious state of disorientation that characterizes our political situation at this time. So maybe you could say something about this present empire of disorientation, as you call it, to begin with. Well, I, the first thing we have to think about is where, where are we when we think politically? And uh, all politics takes place in a space of uncertainty. Um, we always know less than we should. We don't know the consequences of our actions. We are not always quite clear about our purposes and uh, desires either. Uh, but we find ourselves today in a situation that is much more extreme than this. Our world has become so complex. Population growth around the world. We are now at more than 7 billion. We will soon be 9 billion. Uh, there is a vastly increasing technology that has brought about globalization with all of its side effects. Um, and uh, we have affected our environment, both the natural and the cultural environment, in very deep ways. 
We don't know what the effects of all this will be in the long run, so we find ourselves acting now in a situation in which we are not sure anymore what it is, where we are, and what we want. And I want to say that's really the empire of disorientation, which affects all of us in some fashion or other, but which is also characteristic of certain figures who are brought up in this environment, Donald Trump being one of them. And I take it that for you, Donald Trump is is a particularly extreme case of a disoriented uh, leader in the sense that he is full of contradictions. It's very hard to understand um, what his ideology, if there is a coherent ideology that drives him or uh, what uh, his, his strategy is for going about um, achieving his, his political goals, what his motivations are. It, it seems to, that he's not like someone like Marine Le Pen in France, who, for better or for worse, has a relatively coherent uh, political um, uh, vision and ideology that goes back to her father and, and, and to a, a kind of traditional right-wing um, political sphere. Whereas with Trump, we don't have any certainties of that sort at all. Yes, so we have just heard that he has probably changed his party affiliations seven or eight times in the course of recent years. Um, and uh, when we look at his career, everything from uh, his real estate development to a reality star to uh, being a, a precocious tweeter, uh, a businessman, president, politician, um, everything he is, right? Uh, uh, so he has really no fixed uh, personality, I want to say, his persona changes with the occasion. Right. So some people have um, uh, feared or dreading the, the, the prospect that he, he may be more along the lines of a traditional fascist if he's given the opportunity. But uh, having read the text of your lecture, you want to warn against any kind of easy correlation between fascism and uh, and Donald Trump as a leader. Yes, so I want to say that this empire of disorientation of which you speak doesn't simply have uh, Trump and his followers in uh, as its citizens, but we are too caught in the same condition. Uh, we find ourselves in a reality that we can't fully understand. Um, Hegel once said that uh, the owl of Minerva starts its flight at dusk, yes, meaning philosophers can really understand only things once they have passed their prime, once they are on disappearing, when the world becomes gray, as Hegel says. Uh, so we, have to, we are far from being an avant-garde enterprise. We are really looking at realities, trying to comprehend them, and that comprehension takes time. We often lack the words, and I think that's where we find ourselves also as theorizers as philosophers, uh, political theorists. So yeah, I want to I say... I mean, those of us who are entitled opinions, but <laughs> yes. we're also... What I mentioned, brain deadness, yes. is, is, a, is a growing sort of... Uh, growing phenomenon. phenomenon. <laughs> Perhaps it's also a healthy defensive reaction against an excess of disorientation yes. among people, because as you say, there's so much uncertainty that... Um, perhaps shutting off the thought process is, is a natural reaction. So I think part of our, our disorientation manifests itself in the fact that we have only very simple terms available to talk about Trump. One of them is to say that he is a fascist. Another one is that he's a populist. A third one is that we must understand him in terms of a very individual set of psychological foibles and eccentricities. Uh, a fourth one says he's really a neoliberal. Yeah. Um, some even want to say he's just fundamentally a conservative Republican. Well, uh, so what is the case against him or, or let, against the possibility that uh, we are in a historical situation politically that, that could uh, lead to a, a, our own version of a reenactment of, of the fascism of the 20s and 30s? Well, political terms are always used in a very broad fashion. They're often used also very polemically, and I think that's what's happened with the word fascist. We have drained it of much of its specific meaning. And I even want to say, if we want to use this term as a piece of polemic, it's fine with me. I don't object to that, but it doesn't really help with analysis. So uh, fascism brings us back to the 20th century, 
Mussolini first in Italy, but then also other fascist states of uh, Europe, including German National Socialism. And they kind of represented something that was quite different from what we have now, namely an organized, strong state, powerful state, in which the whole population is organized in some fashion, moving along with the movement of the young towards a new future. So it's a it's a form of statism that is quite absent from what we find in America today or what Trump may be aiming at. Right. So fascism doesn't fit. Neoliberalism, uh, I, I believe you told me that this paper, this lecture that you delivered, which will you will also go on to develop you know, into a larger book project, that you had heard um, a lecture previously that was saying that the Trump presidency is just neoliberalism coming back in yes. its, in its uh, normal form. You don't agree with that so, either. So my distinguished colleague, uh, Wendy Brown from Political Science in Berkeley, um, uh, lectured in the same series in which I gave my talk a couple of months ago, and her analysis was that Trump is fundamentally a neoliberal and has to be understood in as a neoliberal, and we have to critique him in the same way in which we critique a neoliberalism around the world. So what is a neoliberal? Yeah. Uh, neoliberalism, in my understanding, is a doctrine which seeks to really separate politics from the state and uh, assert the preeminence of the economic over the political. Trump seems to me to represent something quite different, I mean, the unification of the political and the economic. Uh, so he's both a businessman, he remains a businessman while he is a president, Right. And he said famously in a New York Times interview that for the president, there can't be a conflict of interest. Right. We'll get, we're going to get yeah. back to that. It's, but first, another um, option, which is that a populist. So mm. there is, he ran as a populist. A lot of his rhetoric was populist. But you also are not convinced that... Um, that there is a genuine populism at work there. Again, as with the term fascism, uh, the uh, word populism has become partly a polemical term, has lost much of its substantive meaning, and so we really have to try to recapture what could be meant by this. I take populism as an, a doctrine which says, which upholds what I call the virtue of the people versus the corruption of the elites. Right. Um, and uh, that kind of way of speaking is certainly very prominent in Trump's inaugural lecture. Oh yes, and in uh, fact, if you if you don't mind, I'll, I'll quote yes. for our listeners some of the, the what he said there about for too long a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs, and while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families all across our land, and so on and so forth. It sounds like very bona fide uh, populism there. No? It, it is indeed, yes. Yeah. So I, I, that's why I say that he uses a populist rhetoric, but he positions himself in a very different place, maybe a much more plutocratic form of government right. that has very little to do with po populism. Before you make your case for the plutocratic Trump, you say that it uh, that we should go by a few simple guidelines, and that the first is to set aside, at least for the time being, what Trump has said, since we know that a politician is likely to adapt his words to the occasion, and that we can't really trust uh, that he is telling us what he really thinks, and. A second guideline is to set aside what the politician thinks, and this is what I like, insofar as we can even make that out, because what he thinks and what really motivates him are not necessarily the same thing. Hmm. That's, that's a very important point. But there's also the third guideline that we should set aside easy speculations that we ourselves are prone to about what might motivate Trump, and what he might do, and what the consequences of his actions might be. And instead, you say we should concentrate first on the empirical facts and establish uh, three kind of undeniable empirical facts. So three of which are important. The first is that Trump is a multi-billionaire. The second, that although he started by no means from nothing, he is in essence a self-made man. And the third, that whatever else he has done, he is above all a real estate developer. So these are these three truths 
Maybe we can go through them one at yes. a time briefly to build the case for the plutocracy that he... Yeah. So not only is he a billionaire, but he has surrounded himself with billionaire friends. Yeah. He lives in a billionaire environment. He has spent many years down in Florida, as we now find him frequenting the place very often. But he has a whole circle of billionaire friends there with whom he has... Uh, been in close contact. Some of them have been given political tasks now sure. in this regime. Uh, he has been financed by billionaires. Uh, he lives in a billionaire world, not in a world of people who are unemployed, uh, impoverished, disillusioned populists. Exactly. And on the question of the as a real estate uh, man, that's important. We, the self-made man we can talk about later. But as a, yes. uh, given that he made his fortune in real estate, it, that for you is important because a real estate um, tycoon is someone who has to deal with government and the institutions of government because real estate depends on obtaining licenses and permits tra and traffic uh, uh, issues and so forth. So he has a long history of dealing with government at the local and perhaps even at the national level because real estate developers require that that kind of collaboration. And he's used his money, you claim, you know, to uh, promote his real estate interests. And this is very important in understanding him as a president. Yes. Um, more generally speaking, I think we have underestimated the political significance of real estate in our world. Yeah. Um, uh, this has come to my, opinion, my, my attention first when I spent some time living in Hong Kong and I realized that Hong Kong is all about real estate. Uh, the richest people in Hong Kong are real estate magnates. They dominate the political scene as well. They determine everything. And they are completely in agreement with the Beijing government. They are very pro-mainland Chinese, Beijing-oriented, because they like the authoritarianism of, of Beijing. Uh, they do not like unrest. They do not like a populace that demonstrates against them or their interests. Right. And so I think there is a very sp specific character to real estate. We have uh, see this across the world. Real estate has been the one area of our economics where there have been very large profits made. The 2008 crisis was, of sure. course, a in America was a real estate crisis, right, as we know, and it was a crisis because so much money was being made in a very uh, abnormal fashion, um, and it all collapsed. But money is still being made and has been made in real estate in recent years across the world, and Trump is somebody who has profited from this, and he's a characteristic figure of that kind of business. And how do you see him being a real estate person operate in, in his still young presidency? Well, he's, as you know, he has, uh, has a big hotel right next to the, uh, very close to the White House, right. um, and he rents it out to passing diplomats. Um, business is everywhere uh, in, his, uh, in his life. Uh, so um, when recently um, Angela Merkel in Germany was trying to improve her um, relationship with Trump, she made sure to invite Ivanka Trump to Germany and give her a prominent role at a conference on women, women's interest in politics because she thought this is the way to get an entry into the Trump universe, right? And so it's via these business interests that you get right. close to Trump. But at the same time, the relation, again, as on real estate and government, no, this, you write, but that... Um, it shares, these real estate tycoons, they might share with um, neoliberals a dislike of restrictive regulations, mm -hmm. but unlike the neoliberals, they do always seek positive contact with government. Real estate needs permits and easements. It is dependent on city planning, traffic planning, on the availability of power and sewage lines, of schools and parks. Real estate typically depends on various kinds of subsidy and tax relief and so forth. So this would be... Uh, demarcation away from the neoliberal sense. And that therefore, uh, Trump is not anti-government. He just has a different notion of what government's role is in this um, 
alliance between economy and politics. Uh, yes, and he wants uh, less regulation in order to assert his own will to power, I think, more effectively. So he's an authoritarian, certainly we shouldn't doubt that at all, uh, but not somebody who's necessarily out to destroy the state or the institutions. Right. So how do you reconcile that? You spoke about the Hong Kong magnates mm. being in favor of a, of a strong authoritarian government. Uh, but why then deregulation? Why is it, Because that doesn't seem to go with strong authoritarian governments. No, you want deregulation of your business so that you can build more of your buildings right. and building codes are adapted to your interests. But you also want to collaborate with um, a government, you want government to act in right. terms of your business, of your real estate interests. Yeah. And this is how you define plutocracy. In fact, you say it is this integration of politics and business that he represents, and its name is plutocracy. Yes. So can you say a few words about what, it, what exactly is plutocracy? It's an old, you know, one of the traditional forms of government. But, yeah, in the traditional sense, how do we understand plutocracy? Yeah, plutocracy, of course, means literally the rule of the rich. Right. Uh, and right. uh, Plutus is the, the god of money. Not, not the worst form of government, according not, to not, Aristotle. Not the worst form of government. Tyranny there, is. There, yes, tyranny yes, is, certainly. right. Um, but still far down the ladder, um, because it's an, a form of government that is in the interest of the few uh, of those rich people, uh, particularly. And so another word that Aristotle and Plato uses oligarchy, the rule of the few. So uh, why, why do the rich want to rule? There are many reasons. I think some of them are motivated by religious ideological motivations. There is always, of course, that interest to maintain and preserve and protect what you have, as well as to expand it if possible. Uh, so there are monetary interests, but there are also ideological interests that, uh, that plutocrats can have. Yeah, so in the traditional plutocracies that we know from his, history, so we have the uh, Renaissance Florence was very much of a plutocracy when, mm. when it was under the rule of the Medici family. The Dutch uh, Republic of the 17th century is notorious plutocracy. But as you point out, in those cases, the interests of the plutocrats ha had strong connections with the interests of the people, or let's say the, the society, because in Florence... Florence had common enemies. There was a common religion, Christian religion. There was a sense that we all belong to um, uh, the city state as such. Therefore, plutocracy worked to some extent in line with the public interest. In the Dutch Republic as well, it was also a period of cultural flourishing, artistic, philosophical, mm -hmm. as we know, uh, because they did have... Um, a strong sense of, of uh, collective identity. Your claim is that plutocracy today in America is similar in some respects to the traditional plutocracies of the past, but very different in other respects because it does not have the same sort of alignment with the uh, public interest and the public sphere. Yes, because we also, of course, have to see this new plutocracy in this context of a globalized world where money is not necessarily tied to one location. Right. Uh, the plutocrat is not necessarily identifying himself with the place where they live because they may live anywhere. Right. They may have many places in many parts of the world where they live. So they've become internationalized. There is no attachment anymore to the local, I think, or it's a weakened attachment to the local that we find local interests, local values. And so I call this also a nihilistic form of plutocracy as a result. So you believe that Trump is uh, aligned with the, the plutocrats, whether he is aware of it or not. Do you believe he's aware of his plutocratic um, allegiances? Or is, he, is it just something that is structurally guiding him, regardless of his, his own um, sense of what his, his true mission is as president of the United States? I certainly think that the structural alignment is what is most important 
uh, causally and for explanatory purposes, but I think he also, of course, identifies with plutocracy. He identifies with these rich. Um, you may remember this wonderful occasion which he explained to us when he told uh, the uh, visiting Chinese president, Xi Jinping, um, that uh, just an attack had occurred against Syria, and he said he told him this over dessert at Ma-a-Lago, and then he went on, what a wonderful chocolate cake it had been. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you account for that discrepancy with the populist rhetoric yeah. and his campaign? He, he was convincingly passionate about his populism and his his nationalism america america first of course his america was a very particular america it wasn't the whole america it was a, a certain kind of reduced version of america but nevertheless um he still loves to go to the rallies even now that he's been elected he seems to feel uh, uh you know a, a strong sense of connection to the people who who elected him who are far from plutocrats on the contrary they're the ones who whom the plutocrats are always screwing over, mm. no? Yes. Uh, how, do you, how does he get away with this blatant dis contradiction? Well, he, he likes to bathe in the masses, clearly. I mean, this is, he gets a very great um, satisfaction out of being with this crowd with whom he can identify, and he certainly uh, has some of that taste. I understand, but don't, don't you think he, he would be careful not, yes. to, not, not, not to turn them against him by passing you know, the health care reform bill, which, he, which just happened yesterday? And so, I mean, he, 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 his policies since he's been in office have um, seemed to be designed to alienate the very people in whose you know, praise he, he, he wants to bask. Yes, this is a very strange phenomenon, and that's why I called my talk between populist rhetoric and plutocratic rule. He seems to position himself somewhere in that space and moves back and forth between it. Right. Um, he doesn't always seem to kind of care or, or think about the consequences of these policies that he's actually promoting, whether they will appeal even to his supporters or not. He hopes or he believes they will without in any way looking closely at them. I think he will be disappointed eventually. But so, so from the point of view of, of what you mm. call the common good, yeah. in, in this case the American public interest, do you think we're better off with someone who is that confused about what he's up to and who is so um, disoriented in his own sense of motivation that we're better off with a very confused plutocrat or a, than we would be with a, with a, a very clear-minded one? Ah, yes, this is a wonderful question. Some uh, of my friends uh, say, uh, start saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if Trump was forced to resign or just gave up on his position because he can't bear all this work anymore? And then they go on to say, but wouldn't Pence be worse? Yeah. Because he seems to be much more the standard conservative Republican, right? And then one fears he would be worse. Well, I, I think he would, only in the sense that he, he pr provides this very benevolent face mm. to a anything but benevolent sort of um, political agenda. Yeah. Uh, and in a... If there's any consolation, is that with Trump, what you see is what you get. But the problem is that what you see, you don't, un as you say, you don't know how to understand it. You don't know what to make of it. It, um, the disorientation, the empire of disorientation, has so colonized his own psyche that he can s say and believe something one day, and it's you know it's opposite the next day. Uh, so there's this um, what you call this surface turbulence associated with um, him and his presidency. But you believe that beneath the surface turbulence, there is actually a steady, recognizable um, politics of plutocracy. Is that correct? Well, I, I don't want to say that he is enacting this, but it is an historical phenomenon that plutocracy, which was once dominant in the United States in the late 19th century, 
the beginning of the 20th century, has made a comeback ever since Reagan, Ronald Reagan, and has kind of asserted itself more and more. And Trump is in some ways the visible outcome. He is the tip of the iceberg. Uh, what I'm really interested in is the iceberg itself. Right. right? Yes, in fact. And you quote um, Richard Pettigrew, who wrote this book called Triumphant Plutocracy back in the early 20th century. He was a one-time U.S. senator from South Dakota. And I'd like to quote for our listeners what he wrote back then when he said, I, when I entered the arena of public affairs in 1870, the United States was just recovering from the effects of the Civil War. The transformation from that day to this is complete. I saw the government of the United States enter into a struggle with the trusts, the railroads, and the banks, and I watched while the business forces won the contest. I saw the empire of business with its innumerable ramifications grow up around and above the structure of government. I watched the power over public affairs shift from the weakened structure of the Republican political machinery to the vigorous new business empire. And he wrote that after he had uh, left the U.S. Senate uh, disillusioned. And he concludes in that book that uh, the rise of American plutocracy had already been mapped out in the United States Constitution. So to quote him again, when I entered the Senate, I did not understand what it was I was facing. When I left the Senate, I knew that the forms of our government and the machinery of its administration were established and maintained for the benefit of the class that held the economic and political power. Documents like the Constitution, which I, as a child, had been taught to regard as almost divine in their origin, stood before me for what they were, plans prepared by businessmen to stabilize business interests. This is heavy disillusionment. Absolutely, yes. Uh, maybe we wouldn't want to identify completely with this no, judgment here. I, I, uh, I, I wouldn't want to identify yeah, completely. Not yeah. that I want to venerate the Constitution as a, as a sacred text, but at the same time, you could say, see the history of, of our republic since the Civil War as an ongoing struggle between a plutocracy and the public interest that the government has in some oftentimes tried to represent. You go on to say that while the plutocrats had won when he was writing with Roosevelt and the New Deal, there was a kind of resurgence of um, uh, a government for the people and its public interest, and that a number of measures were passed uh, in different periods, in cyclical periods, where you have health coverage, you have public education, you have uh, projects like the uh, uh, education, founding of universities, all, all those things that we are proud of in the history of our republic seem to have taken place under regimes where the plutocrats were marginalized to a certain extent. And then there are other periods where they, they come back with a vengeance. Now, are we just in a cyclical period with Trump or, or since Reagan, where now the, um, the plutocracy is, is having its day and that we will maybe uh, somewhere down the line go back to a government which is more aligned to the public interest, or is something new happening today? Uh, I want to say it's both cyclical and something new. Um, so I want to distinguish actually three levels in the political development. Uh, one of them is these uh, surface turbulations, turbulences. Um, uh, so Trump uh, and the shock he produced and his uh, psychological instability in some ways are part of that turbulence. But below that, there are kind of more deeper flows and currents. And then there is a third deepest level that we also have to look at. So the second level, the middle level for me, is this resurgence of plutocracy. But we have to see that this is taking place now in an environment different from that of the late 19th century. It's taking place in a much more technologized world, right. in a globalized world that makes this accumulation of vast amounts of money and therefore of vast political potential possible. So what we are observing is a structural change here, not one that has only to do with local policies. It's a global phenomenon. And that's what we need to get into grip. The question is, are we now entering 
a, a long period of plutocratic rule made possible by these technological changes. Do you believe that Marx's analysis of capitalism is at all pertinent to this new global capital uh, plutocratically organized? Uh, or, or did he did he could he he could not have foreseen such a, a new development of, of the way capital could could be so concentrated in the hands of so very few on a global scale? Well, he didn't foresee this global scale, of right. course, of of uh, accumulation of money and power. Uh, but certainly he has something to offer, whether uh, we can look forward to the proletariat overthrowing uh, this uh, new regime. That's a different question. Right? Is he good as a prophet, I want to say? No, he wasn't. No, but when you get the proletariat, or, or at least a large proportion of, of the Trump uh, electorate are, would belong to the proletariat, when, when you have them voting in, the plutocrat, it, we do live in an empire of complete disorientation. It just it still boggles the mind that um, it's exactly the the wrong people choosing someone to represent their interests or the people choosing the wrong person to represent their interests. And you say that the plutocracy today points in a new direction than the previous because it's um, it's no longer a struggle over sovereignty. Sovereignty of of the state, or you know, the independence of the, the plutocrats, but in the direction of an integration and unity of the political and economic realm. So, and this has something to do with the fate of the state in our day and age. Uh, and I take it that you believe the state is, at the moment, uh, not withering away. But it's undergoing such a transformation of its um, role that it is being absorbed into the plutocracy. And it's no, certainly not a counterforce to the plutocracy, but is being enlisted by the plutocrats. So it's undergoing a functional change, not necessarily a great institutional change. So that deceives us. It makes us think that the structures, the institutions are still there, but they are doing something completely different now. Um, if you want to look at the human appendix, right, it was once an important part of the human body, but now it has become an appendix. It has completely changed its function. But plutocracy needs state. Yes, it needs an order, right, exactly. Uh, that order will be... So, so do we mean by state a particular kind of political system that operates in a particular way, let's say through democratic elections, or do we mean simply an order at a specific level of magnitude, right? The state for us is also something which is smaller than the global system, a global empire, but it's also larger than a city. So, And that kind of structure, I'm sure, will be maintained, right? The question is, how will it function? What purposes will it serve? How will it fit into this larger system? Right. And here I'd like to be Foucauldianly yeah. suspicious about the perversity of power and its operations yeah. and suggest or ask if you agree that in some perverse way, plutocracy might require precisely the democratic form of government as the most efficient form of government to promote its own interests, if only because democracy conjugates so well with capitalism. Yeah. So China, for example, hmm. the, if it were the, the old communist, you know, top-down regime without a, mar a vibrant market economy, would not be nearly as advantageous to uh, the plutocrats as a more liberalized market. So this is what, what I'm curious about. Is how necessary is the democratic form of government, at least in appearance, um, or how desirable is it for um, this global plutocracy that's coming into being? Well, we can't be prophets, so we can't really foretell. Um, there are certainly interests that plutocrats have, namely uh, that any ruler has, namely to be legitimized, to be accepted by the population and democratic processes, however fake or false or superficial they may be, can serve that purpose. So, so yes, we can see the maintenance of some form of democracy coming together with 
plutocracy at the same time. But do you believe that we can have this a kind of wild uh, capitalism without democratic forms of government? Is a wild capitalism possible under strictly authoritarian uh, regimes? I, I, I don't know. I asked this question without knowing exactly the answer to it. My suspicion somehow is that democracy is um, necessary for, for this new global order. But the question is, are we going to be in a period of wild capitalism, right? We, we have been through one, but what is now, what we see now forming are these big global monopolies as well, right? And they, they kind of are not interested in wild competition. They want to maintain their power in the market, their dominance in the market, right? Yes, I guess that's true. Although th those markets require consumers. Now, this is what I'm, uh, I, I suppose I'm wondering is whether the consumer society on which this global accumulation of capital is, is predicated, um, whether the consumer must also be conceived of as, as a voting citizen of, of a, uh, at least a, a nominal democracy. I, I'm, I don't know. Well, he, he he must be conceived as voting through his shopping, right? Well, so right. Which product he will buy, that will certainly be an issue. Right. But whether it will involve uh, making political choices is a different question. As we know, very few people, relatively few people go to vote these days, right? Because they feel their vote doesn't make any difference. Um, when you find out why they don't vote, they have all kinds of reasons. Some say... Uh, the system's hopeless. Some people say it doesn't matter who gets elected, they are all good. Uh, some people have some personal reasons why they don't vote. But we know that very large numbers of people in our Western democracies don't vote anymore. Right. But public opinion is still a strong force. And until recently, one could think that public opinion is the bulwark against an over-concentration um, of wealth in the hands of the few. Uh, and yet we see that the manipulation of public opinion is pervasive and um, it often serves the interests of a plutocracy yes. to be able to um, create a, the proper kind of consumer society which uh, seems to rely on this notion that the consumer has his free choice and is an autonomous agent of, of choices, that, if only to, when it comes to the shopping of what you choose and what you don't choose to buy and so forth. So, the, you know, the market is, in that sense, I think has a, um, is, is intrinsically democratic, not in the political sense per se, but democratic in the sense that it brings all the people together because the, the economy requires the um, full participation of the consumer in it. And in that respect, how you control this consumer and through public opinion and market strategies, I, I, I think is um, something that has to be taken into consideration. Absolutely. So, so, but the manipulation is made possible increasingly so through these new technologies, right? And we know that uh, Donald Trump heavily used technologies, uh, manipulation of opinion in his election campaign, uh, he employed uh, Robert Mercer from Cambridge Analytica, and they kind of gave him a, a very detailed advice, uh, not to how to get people to vote for him, but to dissuade people from voting for the opponent. Right. And he, they were very successful in this. And so manipulation, both in the political sphere and in the commercial sphere, is possible, right? And that's not very democratic anymore. No, it's not. Yet you need people to develop those technologies. Yeah. You need a banking system that will uh, kind of uh, process all, all of uh, the capital mm. that's running through the system. Mm. You uh, need to give people, the consumer, an, enough leeway so that you can actually uh, incorporate and absorb the genius that comes out of people when you, when you put them to work in certain ways with new inventions and so forth. So this allowing the people, a certain uh, margin of democratic freedom serves the interests of a plutocracy in the final analysis mm -hmm. if they are, as Marx said, controlling the means of, of that production in um, devious, insidious ways, maybe not obvious uh, on the surface. So I, I would like to say that 
what we have seen and still observing is this rise of plutocratic forms of governance. But we need to ask ourselves how stable that is. We don't know. We shouldn't assume that this form of government is necessarily a stable arrangement. If we look at the history, we see that plutocratic regimes are deposed like any other regimes, right? And they disappear and disappear in different ways. So sometimes they become dynastic systems. There's always a dynasticism in every plutocracy. Think about Trump and his family, right? Um, uh, there's also the competition of other plutocrats. Uh, the, the, the enemy, the greatest enemy of the plutocrat is the plutocrat, right? The competitor who sure. wants to outdo uh, somebody else. Uh, the, the enemy is sometimes also the offspring um, who wants to get rid of the plutocrat. Or it's the revolution that overthrows of, of public discontent that overthrows a plutocratic regime. Or... Or let me say, uh, last one maybe, the excesses of plutocracy can bring down their own fall, as maybe happened in, in 1929. Sure. And here, you and I are thinking mm. something that we don't yet identify completely, as you say. There's always a degree of uncertainty in, in the political, but especially nowadays, you have to be... Uh, trying to almost be essayistic about seeing what actually might fit and not fit the phenomena. But in terms of the enemies among the plutocrats, I wanted to come back to that third thing about Trump that I am, I guess, less persuaded by to a degree than you seem to suggest, which is that understanding him requires remembering that he is a self-made man. Yeah. And you do mention that he's not technically a self-made man because he was born into great wealth but that he has all the behavior and characteristics of a self-made man because he seems to resent the um, plutocratic class. He seems to be despised by many of them. He has an aggressive uh, self-reliance and uh, on his own opinion and his own intuition, very typical of the self-made man. Uh, he, he has a certain degree of vulgarity that comes with the nouveau riche and mm. so forth. All this I found uh, persuasive on the one hand, but paradoxical on the other, because he actually did was born into that class of, of the super rich and had all the benefits of having a rich father who favored his enterprises. So can, can you say more about the, what are the personality characteristics of the self-made man in Donald Trump that um, you think are important to take into consideration? Well, I, I think you mentioned uh, many of them. The question is, um, why would he have these sentiments when he really comes from already a rich family, not a super rich family, but still nevertheless from a rich background? Um, this may have to do something with his personal history. I mean, I've uh, done some reading there, and it seems that he, he was kept very on a very short leash. You know, he was sent to military school. Uh, he was uh, not uh, raised in great comfort and, and luxury. Uh, so that may have given him the sense that whatever he achieved, he achieved on his own. Right. Well, certainly there's some syndrome, if you want to be psychoanalytic about it, that seems to correspond to what is known as weak ego formation, hmm. where you have uh, a weak ego formation. There is nothing from the... There's a constant hunger and desire for um, uh, affirmation from the outside, but none of it will ever actually... Uh, satisfy because it's, it's it's kind of hole through which everything kind of leaks away and nothing sticks and this weak ego formation seems to be there at the root of, of, of this need for constant ego gratification that is endless because it, it um, you know it, it, it's it has a hold somewhere at the center of it so uh, I in a recent his Associated Press interview, uh, he goes through this long list of people he has been dealing with, all these foreign leaders he has been speaking to. He keeps constantly saying that he has had great relationships he has established. And then it ends up, the interview ends up by saying that a Democratic congressman has recently told him that he will be the greatest president in history. <laughs> so everything about him is great, uh, but he's the greatest. In this, right. And he has given the greatest, and somebody else has told him he has given the greatest address ever in Congress. Um, so it has to be also not only great, but the greatest as far as he's concerned. Right. right? 
so I'm, I'm curious about this from a political yeah. point of view. When I look at some of these uh, types, these leaders, and also in North Korea and elsewhere, how much... How important is human psychology when it comes to the political, when you're dealing with individuals who have such marked idiosyncrasies and whose psyches are so unstable from many points of view that all the kind of rules that otherwise dominate the institutional reality of politics uh, have to be put in suspension because uh, there's, there's a, 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 a psyche at work which is completely outside of the bounds of our of our uh, grasp. Well, institutions are there to kind of control the office holders, of course, right? And they do that, and we see that happening also Most here. Most of the time, yeah. Yeah, we see that happening to some extent. So he's being controlled by the Congress, by the Republican Party, by business interests of various sorts, right? So there's many ways in which he has to change his policies. But his personal character still expresses itself. It's there in his words, but also to some extent in his policies. And there's this peculiar combination. In dictatorial regimes, there's much less constraint, of course, but he is nevertheless still, as long as we are living in a constitutional system, yeah, there's still certain controls on him. Right. So, Hans, I wanted to address this larger picture uh, uh, that you end your lecture with uh, about nihilism. And here I, I'm remembering the end of your book about politics and the search for the common good. And when we were discussing that book on, on our previous show, at the end of that book, you say that we're in a position where we have to think um, the contemporary uh, without banisters, if you want to use Hannah Arendt's metaphor, because the new is so new that we can't rely on on, on older guidelines, um, and that now it seems like you're, you're fulfilling this promise that at the end of that book that you're, you're doing a diagnostic of, of the contemporary of the present in the political sphere. But at the end of your lecture, you do provide this larger framework of nihilism and uh, invoke Nietzsche, who says that we are living in an age of as yet incomplete nihilism. And Nietzsche, who was writing, you know, 150 years ago, said, I am projecting for the next 200 years uh, the story of, of this nihilism. Uh, and you say that those 200 years are still not up. And how do we understand nihilism? Nietzsche speaks about it as the highest values devaluate themselves. But you say that um, this is not a situation in which there are no values, and nihilism is not a condition of anomie. It is rather a state in which the values we possess have become unanchored. And this will show itself in a multiplication of values in the production of ever new values, but also in their ever continuing devaluation, in their constantly being discarded and replaced. Values themselves have thus lost their value. It seems to me like in this last section of your lecture, we, we leap outside of the uh, discussion we've been having here on air, and we're talking about something um, much more difficult to think, which is values being incapable of retaining their value in the particular age that we live in, which would be the age of nihilism. How do you understand the relation between politics and this kind of nihilism in the Trump era, let's say? Well, politics is always the search for some common ground, a common good, common interest that we share, right? A common agenda that we can engage in. And it typically involves reliance on drawing on certain values we can identify, whether it's justice or equality or freedom. Uh, but what we find ourselves now in is this situation in which all these different issues are up for grabs. Right. And uh, we have this kind of rotation or this kind of un unanchoring of these uh, interests and values that's, that we see kind of happening in the political uh, scene. Yeah. And for the first time ever, I have become very concerned and alarmed by the fact that in America, America was a, being a country of immigrants, everyone coming from some other homeland here, that there's not a, a sense of... Uh, nativist identity, and therefore it was our form of government which provided the home, the real home of the American citizen, and that form of government is 
basically a set of principles that until recently I thought would never be questioned Mm -hmm. or submitted to the nihilistic devaluation of those values. And this would be, um, you, you mentioned freedom being one of them, the, uh, the rights of, of, of the individual, the rule of law and of justice, a government by consent of the governed, and a system of government based on checks and balances of power to prevent the consolidation of power in tyrannical forms and so forth. I am wondering whether the nihilism that Nietzsche speaks about that we were still uh, involved in uh, is corroding the the homeland of America, which is founded on these principles as such. The other one being, the huge one being the difference between truth and falsity what is true and what yes. is not true, and our sure. commitment to facts, a nation of fact, pragmatism, and so forth. Uh, do you worry that the, this, this kind of founding secular religion of the American Republic is being submitted to the same sort of relativity? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So I'm also attracted to another characterization of nihilism, which I mentioned in my talk as well, uh, which is due to a contemporary Chinese philosopher, C.J. Wei, very interesting man, who describes nihilism as the desublimation of the will to power. Uh, so we, are, we have learned to control our will to power by adopting, making these values, our own. these are constraints on the will to power, uh, but we are now abandoning those, and so we find ourselves back in a situation where the will to power expresses itself directly in this pursuit of money, in this pursuit of political influence, political dominance, where this becomes these become the ends in themselves now for us. Right? Yeah. And, and I think we can see that in some ways that um, uh, the sort of values that have guided in some ways the republic since its beginning are no longer taken seriously. And we, behind them is this cynicism of power and the sale of political power for money as well that is so pervasive now. If you read Jane Mayer's recent book, Dark Money, showing how money has begun to undermine everything in political life now. Sure, but I have to believe that there's enough res reserve or reservoir of faith in the founding principles in the populace at large, no matter how strange the voting patterns can be from one electoral cycle to another, that, that, the, um, that the Republic has, still has a, a large reservoir of, of commitment uh, and that it will somehow preserve us from the worst excesses of the desublimation of the will to power. Yeah. I might be wrong about that, but it, um, it seems to me that um, it, I can still at least hope that that reservoir exists. Sure, but in order to do that, we have to learn to diagnose the present, right? We have to understand what's going on. Right, and that's what we've been doing. That's <laughs> what we've been trying to do, yes. And of course, it's always frustrating because diagnosing the present is uh, diagnosing and also prognosticating a future, which is... Uh, an even more hazardous enterprise, but that's part of the riskful uh, enterprise of thinking in the midst of the contemporary. It's not like being historian, uh, being a historian of, of some sort. And um, I promised our listeners that we would, you know, be thinking in the midst of thoughtlessness, and we certainly have been trying to do that with our guest, Professor Hans Sluga from Berkeley University. So I would, um, I want to thank you again for coming on and this conversation. I do hope that this uh, lecture you gave is going to be the, uh, almost like a blueprint for the next book that you're working on. That's the plan, yeah. Is that the plan? Yes. And um, we'll look forward to having a look at that when it comes out and having you back on Entitled Opinions uh, at that moment. Thank you so much. So thank you again, and we'll be with you very shortly from Title Opinions. I'm Robert Harrison. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.